One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of What Most People Think. It is finally February. It came, eventually came, and you know, we still we still got the freedom. Still got the freedom. It's getting, is it getting warmer? It feels like it's getting a bit warmer. I've been out and about. I've been doing gigs. I was doing club gigs uh, in London on Saturday night. I had four gigs in London. I was knocking about, trying out some new stuff with a tour, which goes back out uh, this, this Wednesday, this Wednesday of this week in... Uh, Crawley and then Aylesbury, Brighton and then Cardiff on Sunday, but I was working out some new gear. Uh, well, not gear is in that set, but you know, it was a busy night and um, I just saw young people pissed, drunk, blokes shouting, women sitting on the curb with their head between their legs. I think that there is something, of, why do a certain kind of woman end up in that position when she's drunk? She'll just find a curb and she'll just sit. I don't know. She waiting to be rescued or something. It's it's always quite a uh, it's a desperate sight, isn't it? It ma- it makes you worried. Whereas blokes, for some reason, blokes get beat up in public. Loads loads of bad things happen to a bloke. But you see a guy staggering sideways into a fucking alleyway. You go, he could look after himself. But one girl just <laughs> sitting with her skirt hitched up and her fucking head between her legs. You go, oh, damn. So look, I'm just saying there are uh, gender inequalities there. Welcome to What Most People Think. It is a show. It is a show that tries to get to the heart of what most ordinary people are thinking on the big subjects of the day. And on that note, we have a guest this week. Someone who pretty much epitomises the the What Most People Think ethos and has been doing that for a long time, which is Bob Mills, the comedian, the writer, the presenter, uh, the, the star of the cult hit. In bed with Medina. So I would say right now, do a bit of research. If you want to get, I mean, you're going to enjoy this episode anyway. But if you want to get the most out of the what most people think Bob Mills episode, is just go on YouTube and look at In Bed with Medina and look at look at the highlights to begin with, and then maybe watch a work up to a full episode. It would just it would just make it a bit of a richer experience. But uh, Bob has incredible, fit, you know, just so much to say about comedy as it was, as it is, and and everything uh, in between. So while this is a guest episode this week with Bob Mills, I will be looking at the tumultuous events uh, in Parliament on Monday. Wow, is the first reaction. Uh, but let's track that erm curve. Erm curve for the episode 126 with Chris Martin. Two erms and four year nose. I think David Domain might have been quite generous with me. I think I think I'm, I thought I clocked in with a few more erms than that. Uh, it was good to hear that Chris Martin, says David, um, had just one year no. Um, he's clearly been in the USA a while. His speech was, however peppered with likes yeah i mean look he's that's that thing when you go to another country and have you ever did you ever have that mate when you was a kid that just went to a country for like six weeks and come back with an accent like they come back speaking like yeah like is when you're about 10 or 12 wasn't it and lad be like yeah man i just yeah it's great to be back in south london you go 
Mate, you didn't even go to America. You went to Tenerife. Why are you talking like that? Um, let's talk about new patrons that we've got. I've got two new VIP patrons. By the way, it's the beginning of the month, so as ever, Patreon would have done the payment run and some of you would have been booted out. And if you want to be part of the Patreon community and experience uh, the Patreon-only online gig on Wednesday, the 9th of February, with a revised lineup of uh, Francis Foster and Leo Kirsten, then double-check that your Patreon account is live. Uh, we've got Dean Sanders. Are you, I mean, are you taking the piss because of my constant references to 90s football? Dean Sanders. That sounds like, you remember, I don't know if anybody remembers those computer games where they weren't allowed to have uh, the rights for the actual players. So they just have like a slightly slightly different name, like Ryan Goggs, uh, Rain Rooney. <laughs> Dean Sanders. Dean Sanders. Look, if your name is Dean Sanders, uh, are you related to the Colonel? Jesus. You might be the heir to the KFC Empire, in which case, I mean no disrespect, sir. Thank you for the herbs and the spices and, and all the happy times. Uh, we also got a VIP, Graham Reed. Graham, welcome. I mean, that is just, I mean, it's the Englishy of Englishy. No, I mean, that's a more Englishy than someone having a scone whilst doing a forward defensive and burying their feelings. <laughs> so let's, before uh, we get onto the thank you and fuck yous, let's talk about what happened in the Commons. Um, on Monday, because we had the release of the Sue Gray report. And even in redacted form, it, co- it caused Boris problems. I thought that's quite incredible, isn't it? It shows you how much trouble he's in, whereby it's almost like a, he was pixelated in a sex tape, but everyone still knew it was him. <laughs> um, and look, I would, I would say I got some pushback off the episode a couple of weeks ago when obviously I've been very critical of Boris. But listen, I'm just trying to say what most people think, and certainly... His performance in the Commons on Monday seems to have had a similar reaction uh, across the board. And I don't doubt that there's been a bit of VAT added onto all this because of how much people hate him and because they, because they hate Brexit. But the point is, there's still a line and I still think that he's crossed it. But anyway, this this report comes out and I thought, what's he going to do the, the sorry Boris? You know, there's certain times when he gets the sorry thing right. As I said last week, you know, I sometimes I go, oh, leave him. everybody leave, but oh, you know, he just looks like a told-off schoolboy. He looks like a lad, the only lad at boarding school whose parents didn't come to take him home that weekend. <laughs> uh, but he didn't do any of that, did he? Sort of, he sort of went, uh, um, you know, more stuff's come out. Oh, sorry, blah 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 blah. Brexit, blah 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 blah. And I just thought, man, look, I think at some point it's right to draw attention to the fact that in certain cases the government have made the right calls. This ain't that moment, mate. Do you know what I mean? He, he almost was like, you know when you're having an argument with a missus and you've it's been going on a while and you sort of think, I might try and introduce a bit of levity here. It's a bit oppressive, all this anger. I'll just I'll just crack a little joke. There you go. I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just, just do a moony out. No, wrong time. Too soon. Too soon. Boris got his ass out politically too soon and uh, Starmer gets up and he does a good job on him. I mean, finally... Finally, he is actually the forensic thing that people have said. It was like the being happy feet at the end. You know, you almost felt good for him. Well done, Kerry. You got up and, you know, said his deeply moral things to the Prime Minister. But he, he was right. I think he got the tone of it right. And even the Tories, the backbenchers, were sort of sitting there quietly, like they're getting told off by their head of house. They weren't enjoying life. And Boris gets up and he, he tears into him. I mean, because there's a couple of things that Bo- uh, Starmer said that were quite well put in that he was alluding to the fact that Boris's private life is a bit of a mess, but he didn't exactly say it. 
So he gets up and goes, oh, yeah, tissue, the lies. And then he, then he said, uh, well, of course, you didn't prosecute Jimmy Savile, or words to this effect. Now, it's not the first time that I've seen this said, okay, but it has been fact-checked, and it wasn't the case that even though Starmer was part of the CPS at that time, it wasn't like he let it slip past him. It wasn't, it wasn't quite like that, right? So, I mean, just as Prime Minister, I don't think... However, like passionate you feel that you should really be spouting stuff out like you're just reading the comment section off TikTok. <laughs> I mean, the point was to be contrite, and now you're essentially calling someone nonce adjacent. I mean, it was an incredible performance, and his back is, is against the wall, right? Teresa, she's wearing the blue, so you know she means business, but she keeps it short. Uh, I wish some other people had kept it short. We'll get to Ian Blackford in a minute. But she gets to the paradox at the heart of what he's saying. You know, did you understand them? Did you break them? You know, which is it, Boris? And that's the thing about the Tories is they can be a mess, but often will provide the best opposition to themselves, which says something about the state of Labour for some time now, although they are bit by bit getting their act together. But I just, that's the point. Like, even when Starmer does well, I go, okay, yeah, he's, yeah, that was good. Who are Labour still? We, st- we don't know couple of good personalities on the front bench. But what is the Labour Party as a movement? We don't know yet. We might eventually. But then Ian Blackford, I'm following Theresa May, skewering the PM. Ian Blackford, uh, the PM is on the ropes, do you know what I mean? He's getting battered from both sides. And Ian Blackford thinks, oh, I'll make this about me. And he gets up and wangs on forever. And, and I, this is the, pro, I, the the issue I have with SNP MPs in Westminster is they seem to constantly be playing to a constituency. Because you think Scotland's got six million people, about half vote SNP. You know, overall, it's quite a small percentage of the country. But every single thing they say seems to be like they're trying to go viral on a Wings Over Scotland message board. <laughs> And, he, and then he says that he misled the House. Now, a lot of people say, well, he, but he did mislead the House. The point is, it hasn't been proved beyond all doubt yet. So I think that, just like I don't think that you should be calling Starmer non-adjacent or bringing up Jimmy Savile, I don't also think that you, you should get ahead of where the reports are at. So Blackford essentially gets himself deliberately sent, sent off. Looks like a bit of a fool, frankly. I mean, at a time when... At a time when Boris is on the road, suddenly you've you, you've done the worst possible thing, which is make it about you and your... I mean, Jesus, his face went so red, it looked like he was doing poppers. He storms off down the tunnel, and then, uh, and then afterwards, I mean, it carries on. This is just pure drama. And there's one big hypocrisy about days like this at the House of Commons, is people will often say, oh, just look, it's just a disgrace, isn't it? It's just when the Commons is like this. Yeah, and when's the only time you ever tune in? When you know that there's, gonna be, there's a chance that it'll be like this. You know what I mean? It's like someone sticking around to watch a fight between two drunk women in a car park. You go, oh, this is just uh, this is so unedifying. You're still watching, though, aren't you? I mean, it's box office. And afterwards, Nadine Doris, she has a little chat with Christian and Guru Murphy and does a, a sort of a Am I Bothered interview. Very funny. She just was... You could tell that she sort of knew that she didn't really have a point, but she was just looking through Christian and Guru Murphy, sort of thinking, no, I'm not going to give you this. I'll do them fucking. She must have had to use all of her willpower to not say, I'm going to fuck up Channel 4, Krishnan. Just so you know, mate. Just so you know. Channel 4, out. And um, yeah, that got a lot of attention. And, and, you know, it's not edifying. It's not edifying. And, you know, even if you think that this is a mainstream media stitch up of Boris, right? So, say, say for example, that's it, what it is. 
There's also a pragmatism that comes with being a conservative of saying, where's it got to? What lies have been told in the process of defending it? Because as I said before, I think pre-Christmas, if they'd have done a full disclosure on this, I mean, the first thing is, uh, did at some point were they thinking, oh, well, Cummins has leaked a couple of bits, but he'll probably stop here. You know what he's like? He gets a bit cross and then he just moves on. That man hasn't fucking moved on from anything. So that, in a way, some people get emotive about this stuff. People will talk about things that they weren't able to attend and, I, I get that. But for me, I think one of the most damaging issues as long as it, the longer this goes is just competence. You're thinking, how fucking dense are you? I mean, the fact that the old Bill have got 300 photos that they're looking at. <laughs> so, so you were having a secret party while you were telling the nation not to do this stuff and you took photos? Jesus Christ. Anyway, so a quick thank you uh, and a fuck you uh, this week. The thank you is to my wife for suddenly making a bacon roll on Saturday just out of nowhere just suddenly just sitting there we've been out in the morning we'd had a walk just sitting there said, anyone fancy a bacon roll just you could just imagine like the music the, the choir the, the the heavenly choir playing in my head at that point I didn't even know I wanted one I mean there's a fair chance that I, you know at any given point that I I always sort of want a bacon roll but and then she went down and she made it and just that smell I mean is there any best smell I mean I'm probably making you hungry and annoying the shit out of you but is there any better smell in the house on a Saturday? You know, I think that bacon, I think the smell of bacon has been the the sort of smell soundtrack to all the best days of my life. Do you know what I mean? You're getting up, you're going on holiday, you're going to football. What is it? What is it in that smell? The carcinogens? I thought human beings were supposed to smell out things that are good for us. So yeah, am I really selling the idea to this audience? Like, hey, revolutionary idea. Bacon is nice. I think I think most people who listen to this podcast will be kind of on side with the idea that bacon rolls are nice. <laughs> so fuck you this week. Uh, expanding on the film theme from last week about, you know, Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins basically selling out um, and uh, in Dirty Dancing, the fact that the dad should actually have just withdrawn his family from that holiday camp. The moment that uh, Johnny Castle started uh, eyeing up his daughter. Fuck you this week goes to Luke Skywalker. Because uh, I've been watching the book of Boba Fett, and let's not get into all the nerdy arguments about that. It's all right. Do you know what I mean? I think we've been a bit spoiled with the Mandalorian. But anyway, it's coming off the back. This story comes off the back of the Return of the Jedi, right? And at the end of the scene with Jabba's sail barge, Luke fires a laser bolt into the sail barge, and it destroys the barge and pretty much everyone on it. And of course, as kids, as the uh, Han, Leia, Luke, and Chewie, and Lando, and all the gang, they fuck off. We cheer them. Well done, yeah, you destroyed... Jabba, I, I've just started thinking, because this, this book of Boba Fett is set in and around Mos Eisley where Jabba's palace was. I was just thinking, there were other people on that sail barge. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, there was the heads of the hut crime syndicate or cartel, but there was a lot of casual staff. Do you know what I mean? There was, uh, there was people there doing seasonal work, bar staff, musicians, <laughs> engineers. And some people have said to me, well, Jeff, this was covered in the 1994 film Clarks or Clerks. Uh, where they talk about the fact of how many people died on the Death Star and the fact they would have been contractors there. But I would say that when you go to work on something called the Death Star, that it's slightly more culpable than doing seasonal work on a pleasure barge. Okay, let's get into the chat with the brilliant Bob Mills. Okay, appearing on the show, very excited about this, massive fan of this man, been that way for years, it is Bob Mills, welcome to the show Bob. 
Uh, thank you very much for having me. People have often asked me what got me into talking about politics in comedy. And we've had this discussion before, but I want to tell the listeners about this. It was a long time ago on Fighting Talk. You once responded with the words, I didn't come here for a lecture on communism. <laughs> and you were the first comedian I'd ever heard to suggest that communism was anything other than, than a good thing. So I just wanted to get that out of the way first. Whatever this is I'm doing here, it is actually your fault. What fascinates me, it really fascinates me, is when I see you and Leo Kurz and people, and people saying, oh, these are political comics. These are right-wing comics. And people are defining this as if it's something unusual, as if it's something different. When I started, right, back when I started, they'd invaded the wheel. They just weren't sure what to do with it. But... The way the, the, the way the comedy circuit uh, was set up was this. There was comedy. There was comedy on TV. There were stand-up comics. But there came along a group of uh, very well-educated, middle-class guys and, and women. There are a lot of women uh, who thought, we think comedy should be different from this. They'd seen Americas, they'd seen George Carlin, and they said, we think it should be difficult, different from this. And rather than just be about nuns and Irish people, and it should have a point to it. It should be a bit cleverer than that. And that's how the whole thing started off. And one of the things that they very were very open and very happy to talk about was politics. And although there was a preponderance of left-wing, because that's basically where they came from, there was still a very healthy uh, party, as it were, within the, 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 you know, the, the Commonwealth and the Parliament of Comedy. There was a very healthy people like myself who thought, thought differently. Yeah. And it was, it was completely and utterly accepted as a thing. People didn't agree with you and they thought, oh, I wish you wouldn't say that. But it was completely accepted. So when I now see it as being this incredible polarized thing mm. with uh, within comedy and amongst comedy, I've heard comics describe other comics as, oh, he's a, yeah, he's a right wing comic, and it's like, no, he's not. He's a comic. Mm. Let the audience make these. Well, I suppose that's the point: is that everyone has that internal bias. You know that point where your compass is, and it and it can apply to party political stuff, but also how you view individual responsibility mm. and a lot of things. And that just informs your comedy, doesn't it? And it yes. can take you to a lot of places. And I suppose the difference is now, and you know, I've been guilty of this too: is people wearing stuff. Uh, on their sleeve but it's interesting to hear you say that, that that it used to be a more easy kind of coalition within comedy but yes. simultaneously i think people do forget now that that if if they talk about comedy being preachy or having a point this isn't this isn't the first time in the life of comedy where that's <laughs> been the case <laughs> absolutely not a hundred percent it's it went to a terrible there was a there were two waves of alternative comedy. And the first one was basically about two years of claptrap, of guys just going on stage and saying, yeah, Thatcher, yeah, bitch. And getting rounds of applause, you know, and, and just <laughs> basically making party political statements with a poem at the end and things like that, just to try and make <laughs> it political. And that lasted about a year and a half. And then 
common sense prevailed and audiences were, were like, well, hang on a second. This is fine if I'm not paying and it's in a pub somewhere. Mm-hmm. But if you've, if you've set up a club and I'm paying five or, or 10 quid to get in and there's tables and there's food, I'm sorry, we need a little bit more than that. And along came the next generation, which was, you know, Jack D and Frank Skinner and these people who said, yeah, it's not about, you don't care what I think, you just care what I say and whether it makes you laugh. So it, it recovered from that. But it is, yeah, it is now back seemingly with, with Avengers. And the rules are the same. If it's funny, fine, do it. If it's not funny, then whatever message you're trying to get across is pointless. What about the policing? I mean, we talk a lot about censorship and there are arguments about whether that that really exists and about cancel culture. I mean, I I always think with the cancel culture thing, the fact that they they will use examples of multi-millionaire global megastars having not been (laughs) cancelled as an example that it doesn't exist is a bit fatuous. But what about the policing of content between comics there? Did you used to ever get told off back in the day? Yeah, Yeah. This, this is something I feel... There are very few things I feel wildly uh, strongly about, but this is something that an, an, it annoys me. Um, and I'll cite Stuart. I, I, believe, I believe we've had two genius comics amongst our generation. I'm not talking about Billy Connolly and all that. I'm talking about... Yeah, yeah. And they are Eddie, when he was first hitting the ball really, really properly. Eddie Izzard. You know, when it first people first got on the end of... Oh, I was raised by wolves. Uh, he was a genius. And I also think that Stuart Lee occasionally has, has touched that thing. But I get so angry with Stuart because the, the rules are simple. Cancel culture, disapproval, all that is fine. It's the audience's prerogative to do that. But mm. when I see comics turning against each other, it just fills me with anger. Mm. Because... That's the golden rule, okay? Whatever another comic is saying, whatever another comic is doing, that's private between you. If you don't like him, if you don't agree with him, if you think he's nicking material and you want to have a quiet word with him, anything, that's that's that. But when that is brought out into the domain and when I see comics criticising other comics online or even, in Stuart's case, on stage, it just... I, I just get incandescent with rage. Well, I mean, I, I, it's one thing that I've always tried to avoid because I guess I kind of saw it that whatever the political orientation was, was that the tr- the bigger tribe was that you were a comedian, right? Yes. And we all know how fucking thin-skinned we can be and how criticism, but we thought, well, the least we could do is not do that to each other. Yes. And then there's this weird thing where it, it's funny because when Stuart was doing that, he does it less these days, but... There was a touch of like the East Coast, West Coast rap thing. You know, it was it was completely new in comedy, people going for each other. Mm. And I just thought, I've really hesitated to go there because we have to take enough crap off other people, or, you know, punters taking exception sometimes yeah. to routines that we should broadly speak for each speak up for each other's right to speak. Listen, I'm not I'm not criticizing the kind of roast element of it. I've had mm. great fun on stage tearing the, the, the arse out of acts that have been on before. People that I know and people that I know understand what I'm doing and they would do the same thing to me. And that, that, that's not the problem. You're right. The problem is, right, the late, great Jeremy Hardy, bless him. Okay. 
he once said something. Jeremy and I never got on. We were very lucky. We met up again later doing the news quiz, and I, we developed a nice little friendship. But before that, we never got on. We were completely different sides of the political divide, socially. He agreed with things that I thought were abhorrent and, and, and probably vice versa. But he once was in a dressing room and, and we were talking about being a comic and shit like that you do in ridiculous dressing rooms. Oh, yeah, being a comic is like... And, and Jeremy Hardy said, no, I'll tell you what, being a comic, there's only one real thing that you need to understand. If you're a comic, Bob, and I, because I was sitting in the dressing room and I looked out like, why is he including me? And he said, take me and Bob. We're not friends. We don't mix socially. Hmm. We don't, you know, we don't have a lot in common. However, if he knocks on my door at midnight and says, oh, I just died on my ass. I've had a nightmare. I will let him in and make him coffee and sit and talk to him, as he would to me. Because hmm. we're the only people who know or understand that, right? And I'm not being ridiculous and waxing lyrical here. I know firemen and doctors and soldiers have much tougher jobs but there are things that only we understand, mm. okay? And only we can talk to each other about. And anything that, that damages that, that, that fraternity, that Freemasonry, I think is, is dangerous. Did you, um, did you ever get that thing of a green room where somebody had heard a routine that you did and sort of said pulled you up on it i mean i had I, i've had a, f- a few of those well again you, i think that this is legitimate you know between two comics or, or or trying to sort of police each other was that a thing back then i don't think it was it was people <laughs> would say you know uh, no not really i'll tell you what it was it was about it would be about the material not about the subject if uh, someone right. criticised you, they wouldn't. They wouldn't say, "Oh, yeah, but that's very right wing." They would say, "Do you think that's funny? Do you think it's funny to have a go at this group of people rather than mm. that group of people?" Because we were, you know, we were just discovering that we were we were just discovering the concept of punching up and punching down. So sometimes people would say, "You know, it's pretty tough life for, for these people." And do you really think? And if Sometimes you think, yeah, you're probably right. I'll just, I'm keeping the joke. I'll just change the buff of it. But no, I think it was accepted. We're this way politically and you're that way politically. But I don't think there was ever anything to, you know, try and lure you over to the other side, as it were. No one would have dared. Hmm. But what about if there was social media then? Like if people, because obviously people are a bit braver, aren't they? I mean, yeah. Might have been a bit different if they could have just had a, had a couple of glasses of Merlot and then jumped on Twitter later that yeah. night. <laughs> yeah, I dread to think social media is responsible for nine tenths of the ills and one tenth of the genius uh, uh, in our society at the moment. As far as but that, that's what it'd have been. It'd have been. I've just got back from the comedy store and I saw Bob Mills and yeah, he yeah. did storm it in both shows again. Yeah. But, but I just I can't get this one routine out of my head. <laughs> I mean, this was a thing, I guess, that they would always, I mean, you are, and, and you always were, like a barnstorming act. And, and and at the very least, whenever they worked with you, that's something that they would have seen. You know? and, and when you see a comic who can storm it, that is, you, you never fully get past that. You'll always, at the very least, think, well, they are very good at this, because it's not an easy thing to be good at, is it? No, it's not at all. And it's, that's the other thing that, that, that is really 
amazes me now is the is the critiquing of comics um, amongst themselves as well as from reviewers and stuff, which starts with that thing. That, okay, yeah, uh, the audience really loved this guy, but and it's no, no, that first sentence is all you need to write mm. because there is no but if the audience really liked him, unless he was a. a uh, you know, a gathering of the Nazi Ku Klux Klan annual general mm. meeting. There is no other, you know, there's no but. That's that. Let me, I, I want to give you one example, okay, because it's just occurred to me. I used to do a piece of material uh, because I had genuinely seen, uh, on Waterloo Station, there used to be a pub. I don't, I don't know if it's, maybe it is now. I think there's mainly restaurants, but there used to be an actual pub on Waterloo Station, which, at one point, because of, there's obviously been an incident up there, put a sign up saying no travellers. Uh, and I thought that was very funny. And I, I said, if Oh, a train a, station. Yeah, <laughs> if you've got a pub on a station <laughs> concourse, you've really, really cut your, <laughs> cut your market down there. Yeah. And, then they, and then it went out. And I said, of course, they don't mean that. They mean this. And I, and I did a bit of material. And someone, and I think it was, Bob Boynton or Steve Gribbin, one of the old school, you know, good, you know, read to their to their very core uh, comics. He did actually take me aside and say, that's good. Obviously, that is a funny thing, that sign. Uh, and the stuff you do that follows on from that is good. There are one or two phrases that you use that I, can I just say, as someone who knows about the show, aren't, aren't in the best of taste. Yeah, I, I, and I changed stuff mm. because I didn't know. I didn't know that this was as, as offensive as I thought it was. But, but I still kept 90% of it. <laughs> so, yeah, the, it did go on, but it went on within dressing rooms. Social mm. media, you mentioned social media, and that sums it up. Social media allows people who have, who have no right to an opinion at all to voice their opinion majestically. And there's a lack of decency in it, in a way. I mean, I had my first experience of it. This was this was years ago. This was in the early noughties. Was I had a routine about basically at that time I was going to a, a gay gym in in Covent Garden. It was predominantly frequented by gay men, a lot of whom were dancers. And it said on the outside of the uh, male only sauna, it said no aromatherapy or essential oils allowed inside the male only sauna. And this was this was uh, something that was pointed out to me by a gay man. Uh, in in discussion about comedy, so I used to talk about that, and you know, fa- fair enough. Like if there was a stereotype that went with it, but the first I heard of it was on on a on a short old chat forum. So the internet is always the, you know, basically sort of say, well, oh, isn't aren't the gays funny? Why don't we just go out and kill one? I was like, Jesus Christ! Yeah, for for a person who, and you know, this is going to sound like some of my best friends are gay, who who mainly socialised in gay circles at that time. And who whose son's uh, godparents were eventually gay. Not event. I mean, they were gay for a long time. They became his godparents. It was my first brush. So, you know, I'm saying Twitter, it might have started quite a long time before that. I mean, the moment that people stop, the moment you can't see the whites of people's eyes, yeah. the discussion becomes very different, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I once saw, I, I saw a thing on one of the Chortle websites years ago about, about five years ago, about so I should say this is the industry website that, that yes. you really used to be a go-to place yeah. for this kind of discussion. Yeah, uh, and the discussion was about jokes there, 
and someone, and it was very much someone who I shan't name, but you all know who I mean, <laughs> is doing a piece of material. That, and I, I remember reading it, and it was so vacuous and so, you know, obviously, you know, we, we can't name names and lobby rules apply and all that. And I thought, 15 years ago, Jeff Boys walked into the comedy cafe, walked up to the stage, pulled somebody off the stage and said, you ever do that gag again, and I'm going to beat you senseless, and walked out again. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> if you can't do that, don't do anything. I mean, comedy does have that long car journeys where you have a bitch about other comics and <laughs> and this that. I mean, we and the sad thing is, is people not travelling. You know, that part of how you find out about the industry through the bitterness of your older colleagues was a really important rites of passage. Yeah, very, very much so, very much so. And and one thing I would that was always brought home in those. If you were in a with a young comic and you're in the car and you were driving, at some point someone would always say, "By the way, this is just here. This conversation, yeah, all right. This isn't this isn't for for anywhere else." And it was it was kind of understood. And all you know, all businesses have it. I work with, with sports people, footballers, on, on on radio. Thing. They have it. They have the same thing. Things that they talk about and they know. But they don't spread it around. But you can't stop information. You know, you can, once the flow of information yeah, starts, just change the form in which it's yeah. uh, is carried on. I mean, like I remember you spoke to me, um, like when I was gigging with you, and I, I was interested to find out that it wasn't just the sort of political differences in comedy. That around the time of the alternative scene, you you were successful and you got you know shows like win, lose, or draw. But even daring to make a few quid. You know, there were there were comics back then that were that were sort of anti that. Oh well, the the, 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 the Tarbuck thing is the main one. I did the comedy store one night when I came off stage. A guy came up to me, I didn't know, and said, "Hi, I'm a producer from LWT. I thought you were really good." And I said, "I think it's really nice of you." And he said, "I'm actually doing a new show. Um, Jimmy Tarbuck's doing a late night show. Tarby after ten. We want to get it a little bit edgier. Uh, would you like to do it?" And instinctively because i'd come out of the comedy store dressing room and i was part of this wonderful new elite i said uh oh, um, i don't know tarby I'm, i don't know I'm, i wouldn't i don't know and he and he very cleverly said oh all right fine it's just you know i saw you doing really well here in front of 200 people and i wondered how you got on in front of 15 million <laughs> and i thought okay all right fine throw that challenge down and so i agreed to do it and i did it and I went uh, and did the Tarby show. It was, it was, I think it was live or next day uh, broadcast. And I did exactly the same material that I'd been that I was doing at the uh, at the comedy store in those places. Exactly the same, without you know certain language was different, but the the, the gags were the same and the bits were the same. I did about six minutes. Uh, and it went, it went out, it went really well. And I think it went out on the Friday. And on the Saturday, I went walked into the comedy store, walked in the dressing room, and three other comics got up and walked out. How dare you? I mean, it's but, almost like the the left's relationship with political success: winning elections, mate, are selling out, <laughs> having an audience, 
You forgot what you started this for, Mills. And that is, it was, it was funny actually. I have to say, of those three, two of them have, have since said, oh, no, "I know, I can't, I can't believe I was that up my own ass," and you know. But it, yeah, it, it, it was, changed. Uh, it, it, it wasn't. It, sorry, it wasn't even about earning money. It was about Toby. Hang on a minute. You've you've gone and done a gig with Paul Pot. <laughs> you and Papa Papa Duvalier have performed it, and it's like no, me and another guy who also owns his living doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Have worked together. I mean, now it's funny that it has changed a lot in that what you would see as more funky younger alternative comics now do the mainstream stuff yeah. routinely. Like you get Sarah Pascoe on Blankety Blank with with Bradley yeah. Walsh. Those lines don't exist and you know like the way that being an influencer now is somehow different from doing commercials um the, the <laughs> earning a few quid out of advertising again I, I remember when mark watson did that strongbow advert do you remember uh, that and and they got piled uh, into and it I thought, well, well stuart built an edinburgh show didn't they hmm. around that with that one advert it was and the annoying thing is it was extraordinarily excruciatingly funny yeah. It was one of the funniest bits of material that's ever been delivered, I think, that. But if you're Mark, you must be thinking, what, what have I done? Yeah. I've, you know what I've done? I've paid my mortgage for six months. That's what I've done. I've, I've fed my family. I actually drink Strongbow. <laughs> you know, I, I, I always thought that, you know, I thought like with doing an advert, I thought in, in, in a weird way, if I was offered an advert for KFC, right? I love KFC. I eat it a lot. The most dishonest thing would be to turn the advert down, surely, yeah. right? That would be the, the most artistically sort of like defunct thing to do was to pretend that you were something different. Yeah. You know, I should absolutely be the face of Weatherspoons and Jack yes. But instead, they've got young funky guys with hipster beards. Those guys yeah. are never going to go to Weatherspoons. They've never been to Weatherspoons and they've never... They've never eaten, they've never made the wrong decision and said, give us a, just three pieces. No, actually, give us six. Give us 12. <laughs> okay, all right, just, just, just whatever you've got left, put it in the box. <laughs> they've never done that. He started that. Was it, was it Bill Hicks who started that? That if you've ever done an advert, you're off the, you, you're, you're off the scale. You're no longer part of, you know, the comedy thing. I think. I think it was him that started all that. And it, it is, listen, <clears throat> you might come into comedy, you, you might do your first ever gig because you might, you know, you know my mates, mm. you should do that. That might be the reason for you to do your own response. But if you do it for more than six months and you're doing it seriously, you're doing it to earn a living. Mm. You're doing it to, to pay your mortgage and feed your family. It's as simple as that. Uh, and to say that, how, that, however, there are huge swathes of this that I won't take part in. You know, it's like being, it's like, sorry, it's like being a joiner and saying, ah, yeah, I'd love to do all this work. The only thing, I won't do doors. <laughs> I'll do the shelves, I'll do the sides of it, but you'll have to bring yeah. someone else in to do the doors. Or, or you, I draw you, the line. Or you, you say, like, I'll do people's houses, but if a massive commercial contract comes along, yeah. Like, you know, for a few hundred grams, sorry, it's not why I got into it. I'll, nah, I like doing classic houses. Yeah, that's not why I'm here. <laughs> Listen, I do, I am a brilliant car mechanic, right? Up to and including the 1972 Ford Cortina. After that, I won't touch it. <laughs> 
Okay, I hope you're enjoying the chat there with Bob. I just interrupt to do a quick hype here. Uh, we've got a couple of new Patreons. Andrew Brockington. Andrew Brockington. You sound like a character in Peter Rabbit, don't you? Andrew Brockington. Andrew Brock... That's such a posh name, isn't it? The Brockingtons. We're having the Brockingtons over. It's probably one of those ones. It's, it's got to be a town, isn't there, in South Yorkshire called Brockington. Uh, which doesn't sound as posh when you become, I've gone, I've gone a bit Sean Bean now. Oh, by the way, just a minor thing. I, I'm going to Sheffield. I'm doing a tour show in Sheffield next Thursday. Uh, next Thursday, the... What day is it, Jeff? I'll tell you. Fucking chill out. Uh, it is the 10th of February, and we were promoing it on Facebook. And the amount of people that these guys go, what, a fucking Tory in Sheffield? Fuck off. No one will come. And, you know, we've got decent numbers in the room. And it just amazes me that people don't stop and think, Maybe not everyone thinks the same as me. I mean, maybe a place like Sheffield is broadly left-leaning, but will no doubt have all kinds of people politically, and most importantly, left-wingers who don't always need to hear things they agree with. I know it's a shocking idea, but they are, they are out there. So welcome, Andrew, Andrew Brockington. That's what he is. He's a character from a Jane Austen film, isn't he? He's the guy that she thinks that she loves initially, but it turns out he's a bit of a shap, sap, and you know she has a bit of action with the gamekeeper. Uh, is that Chatley's? I don't know. Uh, I've got Sean Bean on the mind, evidently. And Matthew Price. I think Matt Price was a patron before. If you come back to the, if you come back to the fold, Matty Price. I mean, Mr. Price is just the archetypal name for your science teacher, a GCSE. Mr. Price. I don't take any shit, you see. I don't take any shit. I bring in restrictions. I will. So I will. If you start mucking about, I'll make you all wear masks. Special kind of mask for Mr. P- no, I'm not doing the nonsense thing. Uh, I'm not Boris Johnson. Come on. Uh, so, yeah, the tour, it does start. We are going all over the show. We've got new dates that are being announced this week. I, I can tease a couple of them. We're going to go to Glasgow. We're going to go to Saffron Walden. <laughs> we're going to go, I think we're going, are we going, uh, where are we going? Spalding. We're going to fucking Spalding in Lynx, right? In Lincolnshire. We've got a few new dates that we're adding. We're going to Portsmouth. We're going to Ipswich. So now... You know, it's the time to start getting tickets because the cron is fading away. It's getting warmer. We don't have to wear the masks anymore. And I hope uh, to see you to see you out on tour. I might even be able to um, I might even be able to stick around afterwards. You know, press some flesh like the old days. You know, I be honest. There's some people on the, the, the last tour that I'll probably claim that I've got a new variant or something. But most of you are normal. I mean, you like when the first time I saw you it was like it's quite clear that that you were more like the audience, if you know what I mean. Like you had you had you've always had a bond with them and an understanding of the common man. And I remember there was a routine that that you did, which was you would talk about you know in the nineties I was the governor in stand up and and you know, to talk about politics now or big ideas, but back then stand up was about one thing. And I don't want to butcher the routine, but essentially you said it's go on stage, find a bloke with a shit shirt and take the piss out of him. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> For 20 minutes. Or if you're in Edinburgh, 45. <laughs> Sometimes in an Edinburgh show, a longer show, you might have to find a shit shirt and a bald guy. But other than that. <laughs> now, well, it was. It was that's crudely simplistic. But but it, it did change, but it changed. It changed because of the audience. It changed because of the audience, the point I was making. When it was the Earth Exchange, which was... I think you, I'll tell you what it was at the Earth Exchange. Uh, a pound or 50p for the unwaged. 
That's what we used to call people. That's what we used to call those feckless lunatics. <laughs> Wouldn't work. <laughs> Unweight. When it was that, and you walked in and you got some uh, vegan food and someone stood up by the fireplace, that, of course you would accept that. But as soon as, as soon as the comedy store opened its doors in Leicester Square, and people mm. said, how much? Really? And we, uh, well, we have to sit at this table. Oh, okay. And then especially once Jungler's got going, the audience were like, okay, well, if this is, this is what we have to do, then I think the least we can expect from you lot is and some professional, you know, some gags and some jokes and some uh, and, and, and as little preaching as possible. Well, yeah, it became a, a form of mass entertainment. I mean, obviously, yeah. Jonglers has been and gone. I, th- I think it still knocks about in some forms, but it's it's an interesting point in comedy's history was that there was this mainstream chain mm. and it had a franchising where it had a certain backdrop and a certain way of of, of doing the shows. And it was interesting because you did used to have, you know, guys like us would do well, you know, because we get out yeah. there, we we get stuck in. But equally, I think that acts that were more esoteric, it was good for them because they would sort of have to go, well, how the hell do I pitch this to a mass audience? Yeah. And then when some of those guys did get big, they knew how to play it both ways. I mean, someone like Milton is a great example of, you know, it's quite off the wall, the look and the style of it. But he, I saw him in some absolute bear pits, you know, yeah. having stormers where on paper you go with well, a guy with a strange shirt and, and the wacky hair, this might be a difficult sell. Yeah. So two points here. Firstly, I, I always do this whenever Junglers comes up because Junglers has become the bogey word in comedy. And for a whole huge generation of comics, it is, you know, terrible things happen. They went bust, a lot of people lost money, mm. and it became a thing. <clears throat> I was the, I was around at the birth of Jonglers, and the birth of Jonglers was a pure and wonderful thing, because it was it was a woman, it was Maria Maria on her own then, uh, Kempinski, who loved comedy and said, "You guys are so good. You're so much better than you think you are. Why you know, all these little gigs at the back of a pub and you can hear noise from downstairs? It shouldn't be like that. You should have a lovely room to work in." you know, with a beautiful stage and the best lighting and the best sound that they have a, mm. a music gig. And you should have proper dressing rooms. If you're not on, in between being on stage, we shouldn't be able to see you sitting at the back of the room. And she had, and, and so she created Jungles down in, in, in Lavender Hill. And for about five years, it was, it was everything it was trying to be. It was a really brilliant place, doing exactly what you said. Right, you're the club comic, but this club is much bigger and there's a lot more people here and they paid a lot more money. You're the Carvin Garden comic, but this audience isn't walking about and you're trying to get their attention. They're already here. So let's see what you can do to them. So you've got fabulous bills. You would have bills with, you know, uh, I, I remember comparing bills with Jack D and Frank Skinner and Joe Brand and Lee Evans. And then... The, the two marks who were the brilliant comedy jugglers and 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 uh, the man with the the man with the big suit Arlo Barlow and, and things like that and the Iceman and these weird very esoteric acts so you know they were it, it was a brilliant experiment uh, that sadly uh, eventually went wrong just because of money I suppose it spoils everything in commercialization 
But what was the second half of your question? Well, I suppose what it made me think as you were saying there was, do you remember at the end of the the noughties, there was a lot of acts that got big, really big, like John Mm. Bishop, Sarah Millican, Kevin Bridges, McIntyre and all that. And you sort of felt like they were, when they got their first big theatre gigs and in some cases arena gigs, they were ready for that space because they'd had someone being sick in the corner during the late show. Yeah. They, yeah. They'd had a fight breakout. You know what I mean? They'd had some, some screaming woman that has decided no one else is there. It's just a battle between you and her. The one thing I think now we've, we've, you get, we're back to quite a few smaller rooms and stuff like that is that when those acts go big, you know, when you've cut your teeth playing, you know, the comedy custard, you know, a sort of 50 seat room, mm. the actual skill set for people to become you know, household names and, and big theatre or arena comics. I just, I don't know if the, the 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 sort of environment is there for them to learn that trade anymore. No, it is tough because someone, I had a chat with, with an American comic who was saying, you, you're so lucky in this country, these brilliant little comedy clubs dotted all around. Because in America, basically comedy clubs have a, a main act, a headline. Mm. And he'll be someone that they'll know from telly, either a series or a game show or something like that. He will be, he'll be known and he'll get decent money. And the rest of you are paying for petrol money in an effort to become that sort of big guy. So the, the idea that there could be a whole generation of comics who have earned a living and raised families and bought houses and, and you know, lived a life for 30, 30 odd years and not been famous and not been in a movie is is incredible i I worry about that i worry that that's on its way out and i worry that you're either going to be a a telly comic and a face and y'all will pay to to come and see you uh i think the clubs are struggling you know it's it's getting really really tough for, for clubs now so i don't know where i don't know where we go with that there's a simple answer and the simple answer would be that Comics that have come up through the clubs uh, and, and become big and, you know, and, and play theatres and say to their agents, by the way, <clears throat> can you put three weekends a year in that I go and do the banana or I go and do Chiswick or I go and do something like that? You know, to go back and just give something back to the clubs, but that's probably never going to happen. Well, I mean, it is, it is, I do think club comedy. I mean, I think if you and your missus both like the same comic or even you and a couple of other friends like a same comic, yeah, go to the tour show. But if you've got a mixed group of people, club comedy is by far the best choice. Because yeah. it's, a, it's a person coming on, you know, there's three acts usually, a compare. They're doing 20 minutes of their best stuff. Like they're absolute, this is, this is bulletproof gear that should be working in most rooms. And I was doing some club gigs uh, at the weekend in London and it's just like, you know, like, I mean, I don't like T20 cricket, but essentially it's the same principles. You're going yeah. out, you're slogging for the boundary every, every single time. Whereas you're doing an hour on stage, you can have that bit where you go, oh, that'll be the lull at 40 minutes. You can't have yeah. a lull in a 20 minute <laughs> set. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I guess they liken it to the, uh, in the acting world, to the old repertory theatre thing where you had to be shot, you had to be on your game, you had to be learning all the time, mm. you know, and working every night. Uh, but now, I don't know. I, I don't know. I sometimes wonder, I never want to get involved with and I never want to be one of those comics that says, you know, like I never want to be a football supporter who says, yeah, Messi's all right, but see, Tuesday night at Stoke, 
But <laughs> there are some acts that I've seen and I've watched them and I've done corporate work with them or whatever and thought, yeah, they all know who you are. So they're mm. glad to see you. So you're going to do well. I'd love to see you going on just after the break at a little club where no one knows who you are. And yeah. you're judged just on what you can do tonight. I'd love to see you going on after Ricky Grover in Bow. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, you, I mean, I've got, you know, if I had you on this show and with my mates, if I didn't talk about In Bed With My Dinner a bit, that would absolutely kill me. I mean, you. so you had this career, this incredible career that a lot of comics would be envious of because you did the clubs, you know what I mean? Done the corporate work, you had the game show and stuff. And then In, in Bed With My Dinner, it was this, this hit, this very creative show which, you know, essentially launched a genre of show. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I'm sure that people know about it, but it was a, it was a, it was a show that was set with you in your flat and it took art- archive <laughs> clips from Fly on the Wall documentaries. But unlike the clip shows that have come since it, you really wove a narrative into these stories. It wasn't just like, oh, here's a funny bloke doing a funny thing on a building site. You were like, oh, I know this guy. Um, so... Was how how did you was that a creative idea that you had to push for or, or were they the production company very on side? Right, here we go, here we go. Put the timer on this, and at a certain point, say that's enough. You've spoken about <laughs> it enough. Okay, I had an agent. The agent was called Bob Voice, proper old traditional agent. Had a yeah. wood panel in and a cigar, and would and would occasionally say during a meeting, "Just a second, I need to call John K. Cooper." Full <laughs> <Just pull laughs> names out of the hat. Um, and so I'm with him and Danny Baker gets a show at London Weekend Television. He, he, he's, he's obsessed with Letterman. He loves Letterman. He's going to do a Letterman style show with sketches in it. And it's going to be called World in Acton. It's actually on the BBC. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's pitched to LWT and LWT take it and they give him a six, six weeks, six Saturday nights. And I get a call from, the, from Danny saying, I-, I want you to come and write. Will you come and write? And I said, yeah, of course I will. So I want you and Mark Lamar. I like you and Mark Lamar. You're the only two I like. Come. And, and, and the way it's going to be structured, you're going to be sitting there in, on the set and writing. And I'm going to be doing my stuff. And every now and again, I'm going to say, I don't know, what do you think, boys? And you'll come up with stuff that you've written during the show about the show. It's all, yeah, yeah, it's going to be brilliant. Uh, and that was so, that was, that was going to be in six, six weeks. So, I then get a phone call from Bob Boyce. said, I've just had a phone call from a producer at LWT. He said, I'm really sorry. This is the first bit of business we're doing together. But um, Danny Baker's decided not to do the show. He's had a better offer from the BBC. So uh, unfortunately, obviously, that means that we withdraw the offer from Bob to, to be a writer on it because it, it doesn't exist. So um, really sorry. Hopefully, we'll work together again. But, uh, that, you know, that's it. And Bob said, because he was an old-fashioned agent, ooh, God, we wouldn't like to be in that meeting. What meeting? Where you have to go and explain to your boss that you've got these six empty slots on a Saturday night. And the guy said, well, okay, that's um, my boss, really, isn't it? But, uh, but thanks very much. And Bob said, it's a shame you didn't speak to me earlier because Bob's got a brilliant idea for a show. Brilliant idea. He said, really? He said, yeah, fantastic. Uh, what, what's your slot? It's about 40 minutes. Ah, would be perfect for that. Sat- late Saturday night, be perfect for that. I really, really would. Shame. And, and the guy bit and said, okay, why don't you come in and see me? Okay. 
So we went to see him on the, the two days that we went up. I found out about this conversation in the lift on the way up to the meeting. <laughs> when I said, well, actually, we, well, why are we actually here, Bob? And he told me this very quickly, this story. And I said, and as we were going into the door, I said, oh, what is this idea? And he said, that's your business, not mine. And we went in and I blathered for about 15 minutes and the, it was all just about to be lost. And I suddenly said, you know, what I'd really like to do. I'd like to do what I do when people come around my ass and just play them little bits of stuff. Like I never play anyone a whole album. I play them the first two minutes of a song because that's the bit that I like. And I play them and I tell them about little clips. And anyway, that bit and, and that's how the show got made. And it was... It was exactly what it seemed to be. There was a whole library under in the basement at LWT of tapes. And the tapes, you saw the back of them, you saw the spine, and they had a title on them. And what I said was to these two researchers, young lads, go down there, and if you see a title and think, what? Pull it out yeah. and have a look at it. And if it is what? If it's trying to be funny, dump it. I'm not interested mm. But if it's somebody who is seriously trying to make a, a program that you think, why, God's name, what is this about? Then show it me. We'll do it. And I used, they used to give me a big pile of them, and I used to watch them, watch them all, and pick little bits out. And it, it was just that. But the, the, this is actually your question. Why was it slightly different from the ones that came later? Because that's what I know. Having done a bit in front of the camera and writing on shows, is the amount of pushback you get from people who are scared creatively. Yeah, they see yeah. an idea and, and they feel an instinct to change it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, every now and again, you get them when they're really vulnerable and you can sneak something past them. But the whole point of it, and I, I'm ridiculous to say this, but it was an ethos of the show that, that I had and the, the, the researchers had and everyone had. We are not here to take the piss out of people. We are here to show people doing what they believed was something worthy of being on television. And if within that, the piss is taken out of them, then they're fine. They, the, the man really did make the program about ancient Egyptians and their, um, their air force, because he really did believe that the Sphinx, if you looked at it carefully, and, and, and that was obviously an archetypal uh, plane. So all these things were true. They did happen. They were broadcast. We didn't make anything up. And it was my, my point was always, I'm not going to say, look at this idiot. I'm just going to say, look at this. Because that was the point with some of the shows that followed in that image, perhaps to an extent did sort of do that. Whereas you would, you would construct that narrative, like the guy that was going for work on a building site. He wasn't just, it was your mate, Steve. Yes. Steve. Yeah. And, and we still, among my pals, we still say, what, back here next week? And well, back here next week. Well, what <laughs> the game's <palaver>. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> what a palaver. I mean, I, was, I would just encourage anybody, like right now, there's loads of great stuff on YouTube. I mean, there was that clip of, uh, the, was it the Millwall fans offering the guys out? But he says, but you pointed out, but they were driving away in a van. Yeah. And, and yeah. just these acute observations, which were just so lightly done, but so funny. Yeah. My favourite bit of that is, and it, it's people shout it a lot to me, is when the fight breaks out, they're outside of a hardware shop, which seems to sell very convenient sticks. <laughs> yes. 
So that was all stuff, but that was what we do. That's what comics do is they notice things. Mm. They look at things and they notice things. But this was rather than life and then talk about it, it was watch it and just point it out. You know, just point these things out and let people decide whether or not it's funny. Uh, if you want to go on YouTube and have a look at it, do. Because they've edited, the guy who's put them on YouTube has put, like, the best of. There was there was five series of it, and about 30% of it was the most appalling, banal dullness you'll ever imagine. <laughs> so some of it was good. But I'm going to make this point now to you, Jeffrey Lawcott. Mm. <clears throat> As we do this, let's get... Let's get to know each other a bit better. Yeah. The the main thing about Embedding the Dinner is this. It, um, it provided a lot of entertainment for a lot of uh, people. We're very happy. There's a whole generation of people who seem to be unemployable in those days because they, they were quite happy to sit drinking with their mates until three o'clock yeah. in the morning, <laughs> watching it and talking about it. Uh, but it did something much more important than that. I'm in my 60s now. I'm a club comic in the 60s. And I have a lot of friends who, are, you know, they're basically fine. It's a nice life being a comedian, but they do have this little bit of darkness in them that they never got this chance. They never did that. Mm. And they watch people on the television not as good as them. And they turn on live at the Apollo and they think, I'm, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. Why aren't I doing that? Well, because our time has passed. It's as simple as that. I don't have any of that angst at all. Because at one point, I made these six series of shows, which, and if they came down and said, okay, Bob, what we're going to do, we're going to send you to Turkey and have full body surgery. You're going to look magnificent. We're going to get brilliant clothes for you. And we're going to give you 10 million pounds to make a comedy show. I still couldn't do that. I could never do that again. It was of the moment and it was perfect for what it was. And so it carries me. It, it's, what it did was it scratched that itch that too mm. many comics grow old with. I mean, it was like of a genre that doesn't really exist now was post-pub TV. Do you yeah. remember when that was a slot? What yeah. were people going to watch when they get home? I don't even know if that exists anymore. I mean, No, what? because it doesn't, because you can watch anything now. You know, you've got Netflix and Amazon and Prime and all these. There there is no, but there was, when you were coming home from the pub, there was this tiny window. My God, what what is there to watch? I don't really want to watch a religious program. And then there's the Open University. I don't want to watch that. But Janet Street Porter, uh, who was at um, LWT at the time, basically what she came up with was, look, the licensing had changed. We can now carry on broadcasting until uh, I think it was about two o'clock when it mm. first when they first started. There's no budget, but if you can make a half hour show for for this amount of money, you can pretty much have a slot. There was stuff like Get Stuffed, which was the guy in his bedsit doing a cookery program. It's a student in his bedsit doing the best way to do beans on toast and stuff like that. So. If you could get it for cheap, and we got it for cheap because all we were using was material that was down in the basement, uh, then then it could be you, you could have the slot, and that was that was a wonderful time. But what was the? How long was the research leading into it? How long did you have to spend scouring stuff, or did you just have a good researching team? No, I, I spent. I had a lovely research. Two two lads who've now gone on to become huge in television. 
Uh, one of them's in uh, head of a company in America or something. But they used to bring me literally boxes of tapes. And they'd give me the boxes of tapes because the, the title had caught their eye. And I would have to watch them. I'd sit in a room Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and, and just, just watch them and, and then think, oh, that bit's funny, that bit's funny. And, and write, a, write the show as I, as I went. Uh, and then we used to go shopping. I think we filmed on a Friday. I can't remember. We used to go shopping in the morning to the, to the pound shops and buy all things that we could use as props for those funny little magic, you know, the magic microwave gags and things like that and things to put around the set that I could pick up and, and get a joke out of. So it was, it was, yeah, it was very, very cheap and, and very labor intensive, but, um, but it just seemed like a lot of, we were having a lot of fun. It was, um, there was only, I mean, the only thing they wouldn't, there was only one thing they wouldn't let me do. It was really funny because we used to do, get away with anything. They said it was because the book was copyrighted. Uh, I don't believe it was. I think it was a taste issue. I filmed a little scene. Because I, I, very often I wouldn't tell them what I was going to do. And that bit, you stand there and you, you know, you do. So, and I said, um, there's been a lot of uh, publicity on the, in the newspapers. It certainly wasn't on television back like it is now. But in the newspapers about uh, male impotence and about um, trying to help men who are having problems, you know, with, with impotence, basically, and are unable to, to, you know, fulfill themselves properly. And I just think uh, there's, a, there's a market, I thought there's a market here for people who've got the opposite problem, okay, who, who are so well endowed that they might have, they might have a, a, a sexual organ that's like three foot long, uh, and, and that frightens other people. You know, whether it be their partners, male or female, or whatever, it's still frightening. It's a frightening sight to see. So I've written this book with a, uh, a bit of advice, uh, <laughs> maybe putting a bit of honey and some something a bit pineapples and just just, just uh, anyway. And I've picked up this book that, I'd <laughs> which is anyway. This is a book, and it was called. It was an American ornithological book called "How to Attract Birds to Your Yard." <laughs> <laughs> Bob, um, where can we catch you at the moment in terms of stuff you're doing? Is radio? Oh, and, you missed a cracker last night, mate. Oh, hmm. we'd have been doing this show yesterday. I could have, I could have promoted it. Not that it would matter because it was sold out. I don't know. Oh, you're a good comic, Jeff. You, you know, you're very good. You're doing well. But I don't think you've ever done the Boxmore Social Club in Hemel Hempstead, have you? Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I, my mate found me out and said, "Listen, there's the people. They were they they're really nice people, and it it was it's it's there's a road in Hemel Hempstead. There's a little place part of Hemel Hempstead called Boxmore, and there's a road there of houses, all pretty much the same, except one of them has been turned into their community centre. All right, they've knocked a couple of walls down, but it is basically a house uh, with a stage, and there was." I think there's about 150 people there crammed in, all of a certain age, people who said, we've, we've had enough of this. We can't be locked down anymore. We can't be frightened anymore. We want to have a good time. And it was one of the best nights of my, I've ever had. It was just brilliant. I've learned, I've, I, listen, 
there's nothing wrong with, with the plan, the O2 sensor, it's brilliant. Although very quickly, Mickey Flanagan, I interviewed him once, and I said, Mickey, you've just done the O2 sensor, what it was like? And he said, yeah, brilliant, of course it was, yeah. Of course it is, nothing better than that. But here's something that you'll understand. In the, in the run that I did, there were three or four occasions in there's something over here that I can see that I could do 20 minutes on, but I can't because this 9,000 people wouldn't yeah. know what I was talking about. What a bloke in the but, shit shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, imagine being, imagine walking out onto a stage as you've built up your career and you've reached this point and you're there at Wembley and you see the guy with the shitter shirt there and think, that's what I want. That's all I want to do for the next 10 minutes. That's almost like a fable, isn't it, from within comedy? The, the comedian <laughs> that wanted. <laughs> yeah, and as he was suddenly, as he stood there in the O2 centre, at the corner of the eye, he saw the bald guy. <laughs> the With bald the shit guy. shirt. The full package. Oh, lovely stuff. Bob, cheers, cheers for coming on the show. Lovely to see you. Don't take care. Okay, that is the end of this week's show. I'm afraid we don't have any time for letters today. So if you have sent letters, I will have a look at those and pick those up next week. It remains for us just to give a quick nod to the people that gave five-star reviews uh, on iTunes. If you leave a five-star review on iTunes, I'll read it out. Um, this was from Miss Magpie. So it's your Geordie. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Love Jeff Shaw. It's funny, it's entertaining, and I find that it restores a little balance to a world that feels increasingly unhinged. While Jeff has a clear political, political stance, he does listen to, consider, and feature those of other schools of thought, and the discussion remains civil and calm. There you go. You know, thumbs up, Jeff, and thanks for giving a voice to what most people think. Yeah, you know, it's, nice, it's always nice to have this stuff. I agree. I mean, there's something incredibly narcissistic about reading out your five-star reviews. <laughs> it's literally like the podcast equivalent of cracking one out at the end. Um, this one, oh, I think we read out this one last week. So that is the only review. And we will be back next week. I don't know what we're going to have next week. We're having a guest. Well, let's see what, I mean, look, I might have to have an emergency fucking Sue Gray podcast if he resigns. They call it the old emergency Sue Gray or if the Met Police finally pull their finger out of their ass and do their investigations. But uh, as ever, on Wednesday or Thursday, there'll be a brand new podcast in your inbox. Thanks for listening. See you next week. What most people think.